A reading from 2 Samuel. A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the Israelites have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him at Jerusalem, Get up, let us flee, or there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Hurry, or he will soon overtake us and bring disaster down upon us and attack the city with the edge of the sword. The king left, followed by all his people, and they stopped at the last house. All his officials passed him by, and the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. The whole country wept aloud as the people passed by. The king crossed the Wadi Kidron, and all of the people moved on toward the wilderness. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went with his head covered and walking barefoot. And all of the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands of commanders of hundreds. And David divided the army into three groups, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. The king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us up Send us help from the city. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to, be ride, happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. A man saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of the lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, 
he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, by whose word and spirit creation and new creation spring forth, would you meet us and speak to us this morning? Be with us and bless us as we sit with your scriptures. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. What do you do with your suffering? And what does your suffering do to you? Pain, loss, sickness, heartbreak, dashed dreams, broken relationships, loneliness. These are things that each of us knows in our own very personal way from our own experience, right? We all live with the gradual losses that come with aging and passing through different seasons of life as our bodies grow older or as we move from place to place or as children grow up and leave or simply as the world of opportunity and possibility that we know in our youth begins to be displaced by this other world, right? A world of things that did or didn't happen or things that we did or didn't do and there's no turning back the clock. We lose friends, we lose our health, some of us lose our hair. Loss comes in all shapes and sizes and levels of severity. And most of us, if not all of us, at least once during our lives, will experience something more of what we might call catastrophic loss. Those eruptions in our lives that turn our world upside down and leave us forever changed. Suffering is the story of us all. So how do you relate to your suffering? How do you relate to God in the midst of your suffering? This summer, we've been reflecting on the story of David, this king of Israel, 
who features so prominently in the Bible as both a heroic and a tragic figure, whose complicated story of success and failure, of beauty and brokenness, really provides, us, uh, provides for us a way into a deeper understanding of both the heart of God and the complexity of our own human stories, while at the same time awakening in us our own longing for a savior and king who is both like David and yet not like David at all, right? The greater David we ultimately meet in Jesus. This morning, as we come to this episode of David and his son Absalom, we'll consider how this part of David's story might actually help us relate to our suffering differently, transform the way we relate to our suffering. Eugene Peterson, in his reflection on suffering and the life of David, says that suffering doesn't always or easily make us better. It often makes us worse. It could have made David worse. He could have become defiant and bitter and lonely, but he didn't. He became again what we now look back on as characteristically David, humble, prayerful, and compassionate. Suffering in the life of David is not just painful, it's actually the process by which David recovers so much of the humanity that he seems to have lost at this point in the story. Which is not to say that the things that David suffers are good things, right? No. They are awful things. They're grievous things. They're things that should make us weep. They're things that indeed make God weep. But yet, it is as David's experience of suffering brings him to the end of himself, the end of his pride and self-centeredness, the end of his grudge-holding bitterness, the end of his refusing to acknowledge and embrace the reality of his own limits as a human being. It's in that process, that experience of suffering, that we see David begin to become himself once again. Glimmers. Glimmers of the humility and the faith and the compassion that once characterized the David we fell in love with long ago. Those beautiful traits begin to shine through once again as that hardened shell of David's self-absorbed self begins to crack under the weight of suffering. And this person that emerges on the other side, this new David, if you will, who emerges on the other side of that incredibly painful process is a remade man. He's a broken man, yes, but he's a healed man whose failures and pain are now a part of him in a a very different way. They're not there as festering wounds that dominate his life and then make bitterness and contempt ooze out into the lives of those around him, but they are now scars that tell the story of a person whose life is marked by both failure and mercy pain and healing. And this is the David we find crying out in grief over the death of his son, Absalom. Absalom, David's beloved son, who rebelled against his father, the king, and sought to usurp his throne almost successfully. It's this horrifically tragic story, really, how we get to this point in the story of the life of David where we find him weeping over his son. And so much of the story, if we just look at it, is really a a lot, it's the result of David's passivity. 
as both a king and a father, uh, his, his failure to show up, and it's his failure to act, and it's his failure to extend to others the same mercy that God has granted him in his own moment of horrific failure and sin. David's abdication of his responsibility to act creates a kind of vacuum in which Absalom's youthful zeal and passion and rage and ambition begin to fill the spaces of where David didn't show up. That's the story that emerges of how we get to this point. And the drama begins about 11 years before this moment of Absalom's death. The story goes back uh, to this moment where David's firstborn son, Amnon, who is Absalom's half-brother, commits a horrible sin against Absalom's sister, Tamar, who is Amnon's half-sister, who's David's daughter, right? But Amnon is infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar, and one day he tricks her into coming alone into his room while he's pretending to be sick, and she comes to take care of him, and he rapes her. It's a, it's a horrifically violent scene. And then he casts her aside in hatred and basically leaves her for dead. And when David finds out about that, what does he do? Well, he's furious, rightly so, but he doesn't really do anything. He doesn't do anything. And so Absalom decides to take matters into his own hands. He takes his sister Tamar into his own house and he cares for her. She gets to live there with him. And then he begins to plan his vengeance against Amnon, his half-brother. He doesn't react in the heat of the moment. He plots. He schemes and he waits very patiently for two years until the opportunity arises. And when that opportunity finally does come, Absalom sets in motion a rather elaborate scheme to lure Amnon out into the open without his defenses. And that works. And when that works, Absalom has Amnon murdered. Brother killing brother. After which Absalom flees into exile. And again, when this happens, Absalom kills Amnon and flees into exile. David does nothing. He just lets him be in exile for three years. And in that world, when you're in exile, it's basically the same as death, right? Uh, when David allows Absalom to remain in exile for three years, he's basically saying, you're dead to me for three years. You're not my son. He allows Absalom to persist in being cut off from the kingdom, from his family, from the land. And to be exiled is to be dead, both to David and to Israel. And then finally, after three years, one of David's advisors comes and convinces David to let Absalom return mostly for political reasons. And so David allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem, and he does pardon him for his crime, so he's not living there, you know, under this, this cloud of judgment, but he refuses to see him. David won't see his son. He won't embrace his son. He won't let his son even in the same room with him. He won't even look at him. And what we see is brokenness begets more brokenness, Sinful response to sin leads to further pain, and the relational rupture just grows. Absalom's return home to Jerusalem, it's really not much of a homecoming at all. He's there, and he has a place to live in the city. He's allowed to exist, but he isn't loved. He isn't restored to his family. He isn't restored to his father. 
At least he doesn't feel loved because he doesn't experience the embrace. And this is where the story is just so profoundly sad. And it's been sad all along. But it just, it's this theme that like at any point along the way, any one of these characters in the story could have chosen to respond differently to the sins of other people, right? They could have begun to turn this, the arc of this story toward reconciliation, toward healing, and no one does. No one does. The guy who's just been shown such shockingly generous mercy, David, refuses to extend mercy. And we see David and all his family members returning evil for evil against sister and brother and father and son. Absalom. He feels excluded, he feels rejected, and so he grows restless and he starts scheming again. Now, Absalom is a very good-looking young man. That's how he's described to us. He's also very ambitious. And what he does as he begins to scheme is he spends about four years building a coalition right under David's nose inside the kingdom. You see, Absalom takes up work as basically like a, a judge in a local court. And there are people who are feeling David's negligence. They're like, the king has no justice for us. And so Absalom begins to settle matters for the people that they feel like David isn't settling for them. Again, David's passivity and negligence creates space for Absalom's ambition to fester. And so Absalom's there, and he's taking care of things. He's settling things that people wish David had been taking care of. And all the while, he starts campaigning for himself, saying, wouldn't it be better if I were king? He starts putting his name out there. It's not like there, there's no job opening. This isn't, there's no, there, there's no like open chair. He's just putting himself forward as a candidate, as someone maybe who would be better to serve. And this coalition grows and begins to follow Absalom until it reaches this point that Absalom has the support that he needs. He has the military support that he needs to stage a real live military coup. And so he does. He gets his chariots and his horses and his warriors and his people and basically makes this royal claim to the throne. And that's where our story picks up here in chapter 15 with this messenger coming to David to tell him what's going on and to warn him to get out of town quickly because Absalom is coming with his troops to kill David and take over the kingdom. And he's got a lot of friends. If you're a betting man, you bet on Absalom at this point. And people do. And so we see David leave Jerusalem. And he goes up the Mount of Olives, weeping over the fall of God's beloved city in this scene that eerily foreshadows this future moment, right? When we see Jesus weep over that same city from that same mountain, lamenting the fall of God's people and God's city into the hands of those who sought their own purposes rather than the promise of God. This weeping of Jesus that would soon be followed by his own cry of anguish in which he would take David's own words from the Psalms and pray them as his own. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A strangely symmetrical cry to what we see Ab David crying over Absalom in this passage. As the story of David and Absalom unfolds from the Mount of Olives through this final verse in chapter 18, where we find David grieving over his son, a lot happens. David finds himself over and over again in, in these spaces of vulnerability and loss where he's in real danger. And we see him in these moments over and over again being broken and restored 
several times over. Through his suffering and his vulnerability, he recovers his humility. There's a moment where he's fleeing the town and this woman begins to like yell judgments over David. You murderer, you're you know, cursing him. And one of his right-hand people is like, you want me to take care of her? And he's like, no, she's right. That's what I am. And you begin to see him owning what he's done and who he is. You also see in his experience of suffering, you see him restored as a person of prayer. There's this moment where his most trusted advisor betrays him. It's a guy who's been with him through thick and through thin, has always been Team David all along, but now that Absalom has gained so much power and it's looking so promising, he's reading the writing on the wall and he's like, okay, Absalom is the future, and he jumps ship. He defects and betrays David. And in that moment, we see David do what? He falls on his knees. He cries out to God. We see him begin to turn out, outward from himself toward God in prayer. And even the psalm that we read at the beginning of our worship that comes from Psalm 3, that the, the heading of that psalm is a psalm of David from when he fled his son Absalom. We have there for us, even in our scriptures, a very prayer of David from that moment of his fleeing of his son as he's turning away from his pride and self-sufficiency to a dependence upon God once again. And then we also see in David's experience of suffering that he's restored as a person of compassion. When Absalom is in danger, David is moved to pity and he asks his soldiers to show him mercy. Now they don't, that's not what happens. They kill him and we just read that story. And that grieves David. But what David wanted was to see the life of his son spared. The compassion that he had been withholding all this time finally, finally awakens in David as he recovers his humanity through suffering. David's suffering, his story of suffering, it teaches us how to suffer. There's something here for us as we begin to ask the question, how do I live as a sufferer in the world? The story of David shows us something of what it looks like to begin to relate to our suffering in a way that doesn't simply lead us to become forever more embittered or resentful, but to become softened, rehumanized, prayerful, compassionate, humble. David experiences in his suffering a kind of restoration that is almost in his own life a picture of what the whole people will go through in their experience of exile and return. It's a picture of death and resurrection, which is exactly what we'll see in Jesus' own life, and it's exactly what we will see as Jesus embodies it himself. It's also what he enacts in the world for us as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who leads us in this death and resurrection journey of going farther and farther in to an experience of suffering in the world for the sake of the world unto restoration, resurrection, and healing. When we get to Jesus and we begin to see how he takes up this, own, his, this story in his own life, what we begin to see is that the hopeful vision that he casts reframes everything about the brokenness and the pain that you and I experience in this life. 
Because what Jesus shows us is that what we are in the middle of is an unfolding story that is unfolding toward this moment when God will wipe away the tear from every eye, as we have just sung. A moment where the dead shall be raised, and the broken shall be repaired, and the sick shall be healed, and the blind shall see, and the deaf shall hear, and the lame shall walk, and we shall all be restored to be at home with God in the earth forever. And our suffering along the way is not the enemy of that vision, but it is precisely the place where you and I begin to experience the hope of it. It is in our places of suffering that we begin to actually experience healing and hope. The places where we don't suffer, we don't need healing and hope, and we remain oblivious to it. But the deeper hope, the more beautiful, the more powerful thing that the world needs, that you and I need, is that very thing we can only encounter in the place where God meets us in our pain. In Tim Keller's book on suffering, he talks about three disciplines that shape us in our life of suffering. He talks about the disciplines of thinking, thanking, and loving. Thinking God's thoughts after him. Thinking about our life and our situation through the lens of the story of Christ and through the lens of what God gives us in Jesus to understand who we are, where we are, when we are, and who God is with us. Thanking, being grateful for the lives that we have, practicing gratitude even in the midst of pain, and loving, loving God and loving neighbor rather than turning inward on ourselves to become bitter, resentful, and lonely. We need to be anchored in our lives in the community of faith, because we don't think, thank, and love in that direction when we're living passively in the world, do we? Our autopilot default settings don't put us in a place of thinking, thanking, and loving the way Jesus leads us in being human in the world. But it's in this moment of gathered worship, it's in our life together as we do life as fellow sufferers in fellowship with our suffering Savior and one another that we begin to be formed and shaped as people who think and thank and love even in the midst of ongoing experiences of pain and injustice and sorrow. I don't know if you caught any of the interview between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert this week that was uh, it aired on Thursday on uh, Anderson Cooper 360, and some segments of that have gone viral on the internet. If you have not watched it, go watch it. It's a really beautiful, powerful human connection between two fellow sufferers who meet in this really powerful conversation around how their own suffering has shaped them. Both Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert lost their fathers when they were 10 years old, something they share in common. And so Anderson Cooper is interviewing Colbert about that experience and wants to know more about how that experience has shaped him. And so Anderson Cooper, he's talking about his own experience of grief and pain. He says, you know, I found in my own sadness, he's talking about when he lost his mother just a couple of years ago. He said, I found the most helpful thing 
uh, is when people share their grief with me. And I kind of oddly don't want that to stop because in regular times, people don't do that. He's talking about the depth of connection that comes when sufferers suffer together. And then he goes on and he, talks, he, he asks Colbert, he says, look, you told an interviewer that you've learned in your words, and he tears up at this point, you've learned in your words to love the thing I most wish had not happened. You went on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? And Colbert's response is amazing. He pauses and he says, yes, it is a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. I don't want it to have happened. I want it not to have happened. If you're grateful for your life, you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. And then, so what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be, hu to be a human being if it's true that all humans suffer. It's about the fullness of your humanity. I want to be the most human I can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things I wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. And Anderson Cooper responds by saying, sadness, suffering, these are all, you can't have happiness without having loss and suffering. And Colbert's response to him is, and in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ. It's that God does it too. You're not alone. God does it too. That is the beauty of the mystery that we find in the sufferings of Christ. We don't find an aloof God who looks on our suffering and doesn't care. We don't find some whimsical God who's up there playing power games, wondering which problems he might fix, which ones he'll ignore. What we find is this depth of engagement of a God who so loves his world and so loves his people that he'll stop at nothing to heal the wounds that we experience, so much so that he will join us in the midst of it and suffer with us, that he'll take that piece of our life to himself so that his story of suffering and death and resurrection and hope may be our story as well. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about how the comfort that we receive is the comfort that we have to offer others. And I think this is just what we learn as we look at this story of David and we look at how he's remade through his suffering. We look at how Jesus remakes us by entering our suffering and calling us to join him in his. What we find is that it's only in our experience of suffering that we really have the opportunity to experience comfort and hope. And it's only in the place of our wound that we really experience healing. And it is only as we experience healing that we become healers in a world that so badly needs it. And the beauty and the power and the mystery of the story of Christ 
is that you're not alone. God does it too. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your unfathomable love. We thank you for your humility and your compassion that you, Jesus, being equal with God, did not count that as something to be exploited for your gain. But yet you chose to leverage all of that privilege and power, not for your good, but for ours. You humbled yourself, you became became obedient, even unto death. As our Savior who would suffer with us, bind himself to us in our suffering, die with us so that we may rise with you. Transform us today by the magnificent hope of your death and resurrection, we pray, that we may begin to relate to our sufferings differently and be remade through them to become more fully alive and to become healers with you in your world. We ask that you would do this in the name of our Savior Jesus, O Father. Amen.